Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. Well, good morning, New Life Cooling Gowda. So excited to be here this morning. Um, you know, we gather every week. I was thinking about it this mor- uh, yesterday, actually. We gather every week. And when we gather, we gather in obedience. And we gather around the Word of God, and we gather in worship. And what we can be confident of is this, that it's God who builds His church. So as we come into this morning, my invitation is this. Would we have a confidence in our hearts this morning, a joy and an expectation as we open the Word of God, that our God is a God who still labors amongst His people, that our God is a God who is active and moving and present in this room this morning? Um, before I go further, extra special w- welcome to the, to the mums in this room. So excited that you came to join us on Mother's Day. It's been said, but I don't think it can be said enough for the mums, for the spiritual mums, for the grandmums, and for every other type of mum there is in the universe. You know, welcome. We're so glad you came. And we so hope that by the end of today, you know how loved and spoilt, or, well, and feel spoilt because you truly deserve to be. The amount of love that we in this church have seen as you partake in our community, uh, bringing a motherly spirit and it blesses this church. And you don't even know how your example makes a difference, but we do want to say thank you. So truly, so excited. But today, we will be opening our scriptures. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Philippians. We're going to be turning to chapter 2, verse 1. And whilst you do that, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skembri. I get the pleasure of being one of the pastors here at New Life Gatta, And we are on week 3 of a six-week series where we endeavor to, to walk through the whole book of Philippians with the hope of uncovering, unraveling this core theme that just keeps coming up over and over and over and over again throughout the book. It's written in bright and big, colorful, fun letters behind me, and that theme is joy. Joy. And so I'm not going to delay. I'm going to jump straight in. But before I do, here's what I want to say. If you've missed any of our last two weeks on this series, I strongly encourage you to go ahead and and download the podcast app. Go ahead and uh, whatever you would use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, if there are other ones, those ones too. Uh, And go ahead and follow New Life Coolangatta because over the last two weeks, we've opened up and introduced what the book of Philippians is about, why it was written, who it was written for, and actually walked through the first chapter of it. And we believe here as a church, and I think anybody who takes the Bible seriously believes that the Bible demands respect for its context. We can't just read things out of context. So go ahead, jump back, give those a listen, but not right now. Right now, we're going to dive in and read some scripture. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intense on one purpose. Do nothing, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own 
personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bond servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death On a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, I believe in this scripture that there is actually a a promise. I believe that in this scripture there there is a power that has the ability to set us free from something that we all struggle with. It has a teaching in it that can liberate and heal us from a bondage. What bondage, you ask? Thank you for asking. The bondage to self-centeredness. Now, I don't know, maybe you just zoned out, rolled your eyes. Maybe you were like, I'm not selfish, you're selfish. Or maybe in the room you were like, oh, I am the most selfish person I know. No one can set me free from that. You know, I'm not sure, but what what I know to be true is this. We're all selfish. We are. We're living in a a fallen and fleeting world. What that means is this. All around us, there's brokenness and other selfish people and wounded people. And there are burdens on our own soul and afflictions to our own hearts. And at the same time, it's fleeting. We're running out of time. Things Things are happening and moving at a pace. And we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And we can't help but feel continuously like, like if we don't look out for ourselves, who will? And that's not something that's taught to us. That's, that's from birth. We grab and we grasp and we clutch at whatever we can just in case that's the thing we need. But my hope for today is that we're going to lean in for a short while, as has been done for thousands of years. We're going to lean in for a short while to the Word of God. And we're going to see something happen that's happened over and over again in history. I believe we're going to see the word of God, the truth of his word, illuminate our hearts and actually bring healing and liberty in a space where right now I think we couldn't imagine being less selfish. See, I said it before, but I'll say it again. God is not done with his church. It says in the Bible that it's he who builds his church. It's him who's going to build it. And what that means for us is we can be confident that he is at this room. He's in this room at work building right now. And I wonder if we can rally our faith. I'm going to pray in a moment. But as I pray, my question for you with this is this. Would you be willing to soften your hearts? And as I pray, would you be willing to turn to him, honestly, in your own soul, and say, God, I don't know what you want to do. But I lay my self-centeredness and my selfishness before you. And I'm open for you to do what only you can. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a merciful and kind God. I thank you that your love for us never runs out, never runs shy. It isn't going to expire. That God, your love for us right now is renewed to the same height it was the first moment you conceived us before we even had the sentience to know we were being thought of. That God, you are a present, powerful, beautiful, loving, holy God in this room, in our midst, working in ways far deeper than emotions. And God, we believe in your word. We believe in your promise that you're a God who can actively heal and restore our hearts to our holiness that there was one time in our life we couldn't even fathom the need for. 
And now, how, by your spirit, you have revealed to us how, how wretched and deeply broken, my God, that we are. But that's not where you leave us. For God, you are a healing God. You're a merciful God. You're a restoring God. And so we just praise you in this room. Come and do what only you can do. Set us free. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to do something a bit different. I took a risk with this sermon. I usually have like a little bit more fun, you know, tell some funny stories, make you all laugh, makes me feel a little bit less anxious, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But instead of doing that today, what I wanted to do was just open the scripture and let it speak. So what I'm going to do is simply work through it verse by verse and allow the power of what is true to wash over us as a people. So I'm just going to start in verse one, and it says this, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Friends, if you have ever, ever in your whole life experienced encouragement by Jesus' compassion and kindness and attentiveness and personal concern for you, if you have ever been consoled or comforted or had hope brought to you or peace brought to you by the knowledge of the depth of God's sacrificial love, if you've ever tasted the closeness of the Holy Spirit in vibrant life in and through you. Friends, if you've had any of that, and my question would be, has anyone in the room ever had any taste of any of that? Anyone? Just a quiet, mm mm-hmm. Come on, has anyone ever tasted the gospel? Anyone ever had Jesus be alive? Give me some response. Come on. That's what I believe. And you know what? That's what Paul believed. That's what he believed for the Philippians. He believed that. And that's why he said, if you have, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Friends, for the fifth time, So far in just a chapter and two verses, Paul brings up the topic of joy. And in this particular instance, he calls it a joy rooted in deep, intimate fellowship between the church and between the church and God. And that's a powerful and beautiful thing that we get called into. And his expectation is if you have ever in any way, which I mean, unless you were lying to me, which would be really bad, the resounding response there would argue in this room we have If you have had any experience, any, not just a large amount, any experience of the wonderful closeness of God, then Paul's expectation is that we would respond with an intention that sounds close and similar, united, says a mind fixed on what is true, a sameness of godly love, united by one Holy Spirit, a unified ambition and drive as a people. This should be our heart set. It's a joy that he says is completed by a deep Trinitarian fellowship with one another and with God. And then anyone in the room, this isn't me, I am not practical at all. But if anyone in the room was practical, they would probably be saying, well, that's nice words and feeling a little bit frustrated like they would with a lot of the Bible and say, but what does it look like? Like, give me handles, tell me what this means. And so Paul continues in verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Well, nothing? But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Oh, is that all? Easy. 
You know, surely on paper it doesn't seem too hard to live the kind of fellowship and intimacy with God that we were designed to, right? Start off by not just looking out for your own interests, but also looking out for the interests of others. Everyone in the room goes, yeah, that makes sense. I probably should look out for other people's needs as well. So starts off, number one, pretty easy. Number two, oh, and then consider everyone else is more important than I consider myself. Everyone else. Everyone else. Yeah, but I work really hard and they bludge. Yeah, but look at the way I live and how holy I am. And look at what they do. Yeah, but I'm older or wiser or whatever other, better looking, stronger, I don't know, whatever other reason you might have or I might have to consider myself as above someone else. No, 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 no. That's not what the gospel says. With a valid excuse, consider other people less than you. No, no, no. Consider everyone as more important than I consider myself. Number three, resist the urge to be selfish. And it doesn't say just resist, really. It says do nothing from selfishness. Nothing from selfishness. Nothing at all. No matter the day, no matter the moment, do not be selfish. But friends, if I don't look out for number one, who's going to? Right? I mean, it's, it's the logic of the world. It's what I hear all the time. If I don't look out for me, no one else is going to. Number four, do nothing out of empty conceit, which means jealousy, enviousness, competitiveness, or so on. And you know, on paper, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with the fact that this would look like a beautiful society if we could consider one another as more important than ourselves, if we could spend our lives pouring out with love on the people around us and know and trust and be confident that other people around us are pouring out in love to us, right? No one in this room would think that on paper that doesn't sound like a beautiful, beautiful idea, but then we start to imagine it in our own lives. And this little niggling feeling starts to rise. A familiar and influential voice comes out. A questioner and a cautioner begins the narrative of insecurity in our soul. What am I talking about? Fear. The old what if. Fear. But what if I pour out for all of these people and I'm left with nothing? What if I love and I love and I love and the cost is too much to bear? What if I prioritize that person and they never even notice? What if I give my care and my concern and I find myself worse off? I don't have a problem with anyone else being blessed. My problem is the fear of what it costs me to bless them. My fear is that I'm going to be left without that I'll be let down, that I'll be sad or empty or forgotten, that I will experience lack. Why? Because I trust this scripture and I put into practice humility. And all of those sermons that the church preaches on joy and joy and suffering, they're not going to help in that moment, right? How could, possibly, how could you possibly feel joy when we pour out and we pour out and we love and we love and we continually feel forgotten or rejected or empty? And you know what I think? I think there are probably, I mean, what a fitting day to mention this, Mother's Day, right? There's no one who pours out quite like mothers, right? So I think there are probably people in this room who, who feel the burnout of unreciprocal generosity already. People who have loved and have loved and have loved and have poured out and have poured out and have poured out and are feeling this, this fear realized. Yet regardless, God in his word gives us this call, a call to humility. It's not a question. If you've had any experience with the gospel, any at all, then this is, how we should, this is what we should strive to do. This is where we should turn our attention. And you know, it doesn't mean be perfect, but my question is, do we even have this attitude in our hearts? Do we even have an, an anticipation, an attempt, a trying to do this? Do we look in the direction of humility, of, of, of considering other people as more important than ourselves, 
And does that actually change the way we treat our family, our baristas, our friends, the, the person who works in that retail store, our fellow colleagues, uh, our students at university, whatever it might be in our lives? Do, does this verse inform the way we treat the people that we meet in our world around us? Because it is a command. But Paul isn't stupid. Fun fact. He's not dumb. And he didn't live in some other world as some other ethereal being. He was a human. You think he wasn't scared of going without? You think he didn't know the Philippian church felt fear of lack? Yet still he wrote it. So how does he explain this pursuit? How does he answer the questions we're all asking in sync across history? He goes on, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Or in other words, Jesus was God, sitting with God, equal to God, unequivocally in the position of Lord, authority, and glory over all things. Human beings, that's you and I, right? We have clung to the drips, the drabs, the crumbs of the image of the idea of a whole heck less than what Jesus had. Like we have strived and fought and fallen out for the stupidest mirage of of this image of true and honest glory and power. We have fought each other and we have lost to each other. We have stolen from each other and we have chased and competed with one another for a whole heap less than Jesus had. But Jesus didn't consider this great glory a thing to grasp to, to cling to, to choose as most important. So, What did he do? uh, Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. I'm going to read that again. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. He didn't consider himself more important than us. And let me tell you something, he is, right? But he didn't didn't have an attitude in himself where he said, I'm more important than them. He emptied himself. Where we protect ourselves, where we promote ourselves, Jesus hollowed himself. Where we are obsessed with self, Jesus laid his self down. He opened himself up. Up. He emptied himself of his glory and his safety and his comfort and became a human, dwelling with humans. Not just, and I love this, not just entering at a convenient moment to be a human. I don't know, like being an adult or at least toilet trained. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, no. He chose to enter at the most vulnerable point of humanity birth. Friends, he on whom the universe remains dependent endured dependence on another person. He from whom all things are sustained came needing sustenance. What on earth would possess anyone, let alone someone with the glory of God, to willfully lower themselves so far? But that's not where it stopped. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. You know, here we see that ultimate shame revealed. He who crafted life tastes its absence. He from whom all breath is birth breathed his last. God releases equality with God. He empties himself. He enters service. 
He becomes a baby human. He lives a human life. He dies in obedience and doesn't just die nicely, but endures the horror and the humiliation and the social ostracization of crucifixion. Wow. For a series about joy, for a letter about joy, for a, a section that you know, it began by imploring the completion of joy. Don't you notice that this poem has an almost defiantly bleak tone to it? Like, I feel depressed now. <laughs> but I think that's Paul's argument. I think that's the point Paul is trying to make, that this is the dark, dark reality of what Jesus sacrificed and laid down for us. And, and, and that while he was the Isaiah 53:3 man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he was simultaneously the, the, the one and only source and image of perfect joy. John Ortberg, he describes it this way. In Jesus, we find the source of true and lasting joy, a joy that overcomes the world and sustains us through every circumstance. John Piper says it this way. Jesus is the most joyful being who ever lived. And his joy, oh, it's infectious, transforming even the most broken hearts. And how? And how did these two and, and theologians, since Jesus was around, come to the conclusion that Jesus, having endured so much humility, having endured so much sacrifice, could truly be the most joyful person ever? I find in John 15, 11, uh, one of many great answers to this. He says this, I have told you this, and, and I'll put this in context, this is Jesus speaking. He's alive, he's a human, he's given up his glory, he's given up his throne, he's teaching humans all about how to abide and live in his presence. Here's what he says, I've told you everything I've just told you. Why? So that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. That your joy may be complete. Didn't Paul open chapter two of Philippians by talking about his joy becoming complete. And his way of doing that was by inviting the church to live the kind of intimacy with God and with one another that the Trinity has. And now here's a chapter, go and read John 15. It's all about abiding in the presence of Jesus, letting him be the source of our fruit and living in a way that reflects his kingdom. And so suddenly what we have is this, this mirror image. Paul's just saying what Jesus said first. If you want perfect and complete joy, let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from a father in heaven, deep intimacy with him and living in his kingdom. Go try and find it somewhere else. You'll live your life and you'll waste it. But in John 15, 11, we see that Jesus is alive and he's teaching as a human. He's forsaken his glory. He's clothed himself in humanity. He's been born and he's been raised, living among the brokenness of us. And he describes the joy that he has as a joy that each of us want. A complete joy. A joy without parallel, unequaled. A joy that uh, can heal. A joy that is inextinguishable. It's a long descent for Jesus, right? From immense glory to rolling in the dirt that he made. Hanging out with the people he also made. The same people that rejected him and keep rejecting him. But maybe you think at the same time, life has its perks. I can see reasons, sure we're crafted by God, but I can see reasons to find joy on this earth. Isn't that the whole point of it? We can. You know, there's flavors and sounds and sights and beauty and friendships and hope and love and family and laughter and a whole host of other reasons for, for joy in this world. So maybe he could find joy because he was alive and happy. Hebrews 12a, 12.2a, goes on to say this, who? 
that is Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Friends, Jesus was not a sadist. I don't know if you know that. He was not a sadist. He didn't love pain. I probably didn't even like pain. It it feels bad. In fact, consistent with the biblical narrative so far, as he bore our sin, first, the sin that we threw at him in, in, in wrath and in malice and in anger and just trying to put it all on him and putting him on that cross. And then second, the sin he carried on his back, our sin. And he endured the dark and broken consequence of it. It doesn't say he enjoyed it at all. In fact, it says he despised it. He despised the shame. And yet, in this very moment, there remained joy. In this dark, death, suffering, there remained a joy. A joy for what was laid out before him. A joy for that momentous turning point in human history. A joy Because it was the moment that you and I could enter again into deep and lasting intimacy with God. And it was this truth that filled Jesus with a joy that transcended the pain, the suffering, and the sin of that horrid and awful space. So not only in life is a transcendence laid down and clothed in humanity God, but even at the depth of his descent, Jesus remained filled with enduring, unceasing, and unbreakable pain. And so, so far in this chapter, what have we got? We've, we've got this, this command, this call to humility, and then what we have is Paul shows us an example and implores us to live like he who exceedingly found joy in the midst of sick sacrifice. We have a call to humility and the example of joy in sacrifice. But here's my question. How can we learn from this chapter if we don't understand or even ask the question of how could Jesus have suffered the deepest, darkest, most painful suffering than we could ever imagine? and simultaneously possess the greatest and most wonderful joy than we could ever believe is available to us. And you see, our our expectation of true humility, that considering one another as more important than ourselves could only lead to lack, it actually teaches us something of how we prize happiness too highly and how we actually have an inability to distinguish it from joy. You know, I'm in the same boat. I struggle to write this sermon because I'm in the same boat. And it took a lot of prayer and a lot of reading scripture and smarter people than myself to, to really kind of click, click to this truth. See, so far in this book, we've had five encounters with joy. And, and throughout these five encounters, Paul has fluidly rolled between joy in circumstance and joy regardless of circumstance. From I feel joy because of what's happening with you to even in chains I rejoice because my joy is deeper than this suffering. And I think this can be quite confusing to us because in the church, we often describe joy in this quite ethereal way. Joy is a spiritual thing and happiness a circumstance thing. And we caveat it with you'll know it when you get it. I remember when I went fishing for the first time, that was the line that was given to me right? Every time I had like a, I don't know what I had, I threw it in the water. I don't, I don't fish. I threw it in the water and I was, I was just like, oh my gosh, I've caught something. Every single time the current grabbed the hook and pulled it. I was like, I got something. It's happening. And my very gracious stepdad would stand there and go, reel it in. Let's see what you got. Knowing full well I caught nothing. And every time he would say this, you'll know it when you get it. And when I got it, I knew it. I knew it. But the problem with joy is I don't know if that explains it. I don't know if that works. Because we explain it so ethereally, I just feel confused. Is this happiness? Is this joy? Can I feel this? Because I'm not sure. Because like, isn't this based on a circumstance? But in the wise words of the great American philosopher, when I asked it what it thought, it said, the boundaries between joy and happiness can be fluid. (laughs) Chat GPT. 
See, happiness is tied to the word happen. Happy, happen. Happy, happen. We see quite simple. And it literally depends on what's going on around us. But joy is tied to something far more deeper and far more beautiful. But in no way is that to say that joy can't be raised by the same origins as happiness. It simply isn't bound by the same constrictions. See, I remember last year we had a Christmas party at my house and we had um, uh, my, all my housemates came. Ella came, Hennessy came. I think Hennessy's dog came who brought all the joy with him. And then Alice, uh, my sister, her husband and their baby came. And it was this beautiful, warm experience of happiness. There was so much energy. We were eating food and who knows that food makes you happy. And so it was just a great time. But what I didn't know in that moment was I wasn't just feeling happiness, I was feeling joy. And I only realized it was joy when three months later, I thought back to that moment. And even though the happenstance had passed, I was still filled with a great sense of joy because of it. Why? Because that moment revealed a truth to me, a truth of the depth of the love and the warmth that we have in friendships and family. So while boundaries between joy and happiness can be fluid, it's the boundless potential of one and the claustrophobic limitation of the other that irrefutably divides these two concepts. See, happiness meets its, end in the, meets its end in the same moment that the happening ends. But joy could originate in that same moment as happiness, or by other circumstances or truth, but we know it, because unlike happiness, it has the endless ability to outlast and pierce through even the most contrasting seasons. Joy is truth. It's a truth and a reality that exists deep in our souls and like a wellspring can flow out in any and all seasons. Jesus had joy. He was a happy, I'm sure he was happy many times, but at all times he had a deep and true joy. Why? Because he knew what was true. Why? Because he was the truth. What did he know? He knew who he was. He knew why he was here. He knew the love of the father. He knew his mission to save. He knew the value of what he was doing. Jesus was filled with truth and that truth brought joy. Because friends, joy is built on truth and happiness built on reaction. And it's why Paul doesn't talk about happiness. Friends, whether you like it or not, you're going to feel happy and you're going to lose it. It's simple. But the Bible, it doesn't talk about that. It talks about joy. A great and mighty rushing wind, a magnificent wave of good truth that washes our souls of the untruths that cling to us and that we accidentally believe. And it rehinges us on what is actually deeply real. And this is why, friends, the Christian truth is so significant. Because there is a truth in Christianity that outlasts and outlives and pierces through every ounce of darkness that this world has ever been able to conjure up and throw our way. This is why the Spirit brings joy, because the Spirit brings truth and testifies to it and heals us from those wounded walls and outright oppositions that we have in our souls to the truth. This is why Paul beckons us to rejoice, because friends, you can't re-happiness, but you can rejoice, you can rest, you can reflect, you can remember the reasons and those causes that we have for joy. So friends, as we go, we sit in what is true and we watch the depths of love and joy, sorry, the depths of joy flow over. What do we rejoice in? Well, I don't know, maybe you don't feel like you got much right now, but you can rejoice because the Lord is alive in your life. Because he is, he promises to be. You can rejoice if you've ever seen him bring any blessing, what a kindness. You can rejoice because of the friendships and the relationships that he's crafted for you. You can rejoice because his spirit does still move among us. You can rejoice because Christ's blood has never failed, will never fail, and right now is cleansing you from all unrighteousness and all separation between you and God. You can rejoice because you have a new identity. You are a son or a daughter of the most high father in heaven who loves you, cares about you, and made a promise to father for you. And you can rejoice because there is a truth 
all around you, multifaceted and unending, that no darkness could ever overcome. And friends, it's ours, so rejoice, find joy, make space in your life to choose and sit and dwell on truth. Because we can rejoice even when we're laying stuff down. We can rejoice even when we're considering other people as more important than ourselves. We can rejoice even when it's a one-way street and we're starting to feel a little used and a little bruised. This beautiful biblical text, that offers this so far, a command, a call to humility. And then what it offers is this, a free for us to claim joy in the midst of sacrifice. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all of this being true, we return to Paul's original instruction, the revelation of what God wants from each of us who have tasted the gospel. And it's summed up in chapter 2, verse 3b. I'm going to warn you just for a second, prepare your vocal cords, because I'm going to get you to repeat this back to me, okay? So I just thought it's nice to give you a bit of a warning, but I want this to sink in. Verse, chapter 2, verse 3b, it says this, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Go ahead, I want to hear you guys say it. Yeah. Didn't sound like you meant it, but I'll accept it. (laughs) With humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Jesus, who is God, did it till the end. But what would it look like for, for us today, for you and I, to live this out? Jesus didn't ask that you would maybe consider doing this. God didn't make it an option that when you have the spare margin in your soul, you could put it in your diary. Paul said, if any experience of the gospel has been real, then make this your attitude. So I wonder today how it's going to happen. What, in what way will we prioritize the living reality? Not perfectly, not to the nth degree, but how will we take our souls and say, I'm moving into a disposition where I say, I want to begin considering other people as more important than me. Where do I begin this week? What's one relationship for this week? Jesus lays it all down. You see, he just keeps giving it until he's given everything, and he winds up literally in the worst possible situation he could ever, 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 ever be found in as God, right? There are no more, I don't know if you've got this, there is nowhere more that God could go. Like, this is the deepest descent possible for God in Jesus, dead on a cross, paying for our sins, paying that consequence. There is no deeper he can go. And people didn't say thank you or decide to stop taking advantage as they got there. They just kept pressing on and pressing in and doubling down until they took everything they could from him. And not once did a person try and restore to him one iota of dignity until he had already made the ultimate sacrifice and given it all. And maybe you're thinking, oh boy, oh no, like this is the reason I don't want to do this. Why are you telling me this? You know, like this is my deepest fear realized. What if this does happen to us? But I want you to read again verse 9. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what it says. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. See, God, as Jesus laid it all down, God moved to raise him back up. And as people refuse to soften and give back in this worst-case scenario that we make up as the perfect excuse to not even try, what we find is that, is that God comes through every time when people fail. Do you believe that? That God comes through every time, even when everyone around us fails. There's a verse in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, 
so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. I wonder today if you believe that if you stepped into the kingdom rhythm, if you imitated the movements of your king today, if you were to live like you were truly a part of an eternal and good and holy kingdom of God, I wonder today if you really truly believe that if everyone else fails, God never does. God never does. I wonder if you believe that if you stepped into the greater humility today, if you began considering other people as more important than yourself, I wonder if you've ever truly let it sink in that God promises to exalt you as you go his way. And the good news is that when God makes a promise, God keeps his promises. That is good news. That should fill us with rejoicing. And so I wonder today if perhaps the Holy Spirit is calling us forward to take one step, not perfection, just one step, Is there a call on your mind? Perhaps you feel something stirring in your heart. Maybe there's an image or a person's face or a a circumstance that you know you've got to be more humble. A a space where you've got to stop assuming that you deserve better or that you're owed more. And you've got to start remembering to consider the people around you as more important than you are. See, the Bible's words so far say this, that we do have a command, a call to humility. But in the midst of that, we have a joy in sacrifice. And come what may, we have a Father who cares. And we can count on each of these things to be true. If the Bible says it, it's true. That's the principle. That's the first thing I stand on. If the Bible tells me this is true, I'm going to stand on it. I'm going to believe that, even when the world doesn't seem to say the same thing. The Bible does call us to truly just try a bit more to serve each other, be unified together, prioritize one another. But in the midst of that, it promises by the example of Jesus that there is a joy, a complete joy that can be available to us even as we lay things down and lose out on stuff. We find a joy that outweighs, outlives, and pierces through any darkness, any cost. We find a joy that's worth more than the sacrifice. And finally, the Bible promises that just because it's who he is, God has us. God has us. And if no human ever even tries to make our lives a lick better, as we trust and go his way, as we prioritize each other above ourselves, God makes a promise. He will exalt us at the proper time. And when God makes promises, I said it before, I say it again, you can be absolutely sure he's going to keep it. So how will you measurably move forward over this week in obedience and trust of God and his word? I wonder this week how you're going to taste the joy in the midst of sacrifice. I wonder this week how you'll come to know the Father who cares, who carries, and who exalts you as you walk in obedience, in trust, in fellowship, abiding in him. This section, it highlights how Jesus laid everything down how he humbled himself, the great king of kings worthy of the glory, which we're not worthy of, humbled himself far beyond any humility we'll ever have to endure. Maybe you're in the room and you're like, but why? And we see a bit of a hint, a bit of a clue in verse seven. He used the word bondservant to describe what he became, what he took on, the form of a bondservant. And this word is is actually a really common word in, in ancient times. It literally means someone who voluntarily becomes a servant. And maybe you ask, why would anyone ever voluntarily become a servant. It's the silliest thing I've ever heard. True. Most reasons in history is because they had a debt. 
too great for them to pay any other way. And so they became a bondservant. And so just like these people, these bondservants of history, Jesus came and voluntarily entered the service of both God and, and us because there was a debt that needed to pay. But here's the difference between him and all the bond servants of history. The debt he came to pay wasn't his, it was ours. It was my sin and it was your sin. It was my brokenness and it was your brokenness. It was my apathy, my rejection, my pride, and it was yours. It was my outright rebellion and rejection of God and my way of thinking that I know more than he knows. You know, a day is coming where every knee will bow to Jesus, alive or dead, heaven, earth, or hell. And every single tongue will openly confess what is true, that Jesus is the Lord of all, to the glory of God the Father. A day is coming, my friend, when you will declare openly, without resistance, without any sense that it couldn't be true, you will declare openly the great Lordship of Jesus. And you'll know for sure that he is who he says he is. My prayer is just that you will be declaring it this side of judgment. You're going to declare it either way. My prayer is that you'll be declaring it before judgment and you would be laying claim to a confidence that you have a debt that you could never pay and you have a savior who paid every part of it without limitation abundantly that he out of love and kindness and care considered you as more important than himself what a wild thing that the god of the universe would do that and he paid the cost that we couldn't pay and brought us home And we're going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to invite us, um, as we pray and during the prayer, I'm just going to invite us, if in this room you're one of the three groups, if you respond to any of those three points that we had today, and and you're like, I need prayer into that. Perhaps you're like, we have a command to humility, uh, to, to lay our lives down. And you're like, man, I don't even know where to begin. I'm so selfish. I don't even have a little iota of trust that I can begin laying things down. Come before the cross. We would love to pray with you. Or perhaps... Perhaps you're like, man, you talk about joy and suffering. I've been suffering and I've been suffering. And where's the joy? Come before the cross. We would love to pray with you. Or maybe you're like, oh, a father who loves us and has got us and is on our side. It's unbelievable. Where do I even start with trusting that? Where do I even begin with leaning in and having a relationship with him? come before the cross during that worship song or in a space after the service and, and we'll have a ministry team who are just waiting for the opportunity to stand on your behalf before God and implore that he continues doing what he's already doing which is healing and making more whole each of our hearts let's pray holy God I thank you that you're a merciful God that you're a God who's never failed that you're a God who's never uh, let us go that you're a God who's never thought, no, not this person. But you're a God who stepped in and said, actually, I have the way. I have the truth. Jesus, that you are Lord. It's never going to change. You've been exalted to the highest place. But before you did that, you humbled yourself. You gave it all. You laid it all down. You suffered and you sacrificed and, and, you, and you endured immense humiliation and pain and you did that coming from heaven to earth and earth to death and death to paying the cost, the eternal punishment of our sin. 
And you went that whole journey with us in your mind. Because the other times you talk about joy in your Gospels, almost every other time you talk about joy in your Gospels, it's over one of us coming back to you. It's over the joy of seeing your children restored to intimacy and fellowship with you. Because that's your heart. Because that's who you are. And so we just praise you in this room, God. And perhaps in this room, with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, and if you're a Christian, I believe this is a moment for you to intercede in prayer for those who don't know Jesus. But perhaps in this room, you've actually never had a moment where you've made a decision or considered even that Jesus might be a loving Savior that can step in and release you of the debt that you owe, but you've always felt the great shame and you've always felt the great debt. And I want to let you know today that the love of Jesus is sufficient. The blood of Jesus never fails and that his name is prominent, preeminent in this room. He is more powerful than your failure and he loves you more than your sin. And today, if you want to make a decision, I'm just going to count to three. And if you just want to make a decision not to be saved miraculously and suddenly, but just to say, hey, I want to start a conversation with him. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hands. One, two, and three with all eyes closed and all heads bowed so that no one's looking except for me and a member of the ministry team. Come on. Awesome. Holy God, I thank you so much that you are a God of love. That you're a God inviting people back to yourself. And we see that in this room. We see that in this place, God that you're a God moving in immeasurably beautiful ways for your people. I just pray today, God, that, that we would respond in prayerfulness when we need breakthrough and we would respond in worship regardless. Almighty Jesus, thank you that you are, you are sufficient and you are teaching us how to consider other people as more important than ourselves. We praise you in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page.